My name is Chris Horn. I'm one of the pastors here and grateful to be with you this morning. Uh, welcome to you again. A special welcome to you if this is your first time or one of your first times here. Really gl- grateful that you took the time and effort to be here with us this morning. And if there's any way that I or any of the other uh, leaders or regular attenders here can, can help you, make you more comfortable, definitely um, let us know. And a special welcome to you if this whole thing is weird, you know. If you're like, what? These things are shiny. There's a screen has words on it. I don't even know. Really glad that you're here. Um, we're going to be studying the Bible. It's part of what we do each Sunday as we open the Bible and, and we explore it together. So we're going to be in the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible, Genesis and then Exodus. Um, and it's also in your handout. It'll be on the screen as well. As you're turning there, um, I don't know if you've ever been really affected by a piece of art, by a painting or a drawing or a sculpture. Um, there was a, a painter, and his name was Mark Rothko, and he painted in the middle of the 20th century, and he was what's called an abstract expressionist. But anyway, his paintings, his most famous paintings, are really just huge canvases with like a square of color on it. It would be like just yellow or green. And um, he painted just with color because what he was trying to do was trying to explore the uh, emotional capacity of color. And people would come to the museum or to the gallery that had no background with art, and they would see one of his paintings, and they would just burst into tears and start weeping. And there's, I mean, there's nothing on the canvas. It's not like a landscape or a still life. Or they would become overwhelmingly angry um, or just happy. And they were having this deep emotional reaction to, to just color. And the reason why that happened and the reason why that happens in our lives is because we have souls. Um, you probably anticipated that that was going to be said when you came to church talking about souls. But God made us, each of us, he made you with a body and a soul. And in your soul, God gave an imagination. And your imagination's job is to dream about God, to be filled with God, to, to let your mind wander on what, who he is and what he's going to do in the world. Um, but our imaginations are always being pressed down and redirected, and um, given over to lesser things. There's always this sort of battle for our imagination. I had a student one time when I was in campus ministry, her name was Hannah, and she said, you know, we talk a lot and we say God is at work, but I don't feel like we actually think he's going to do something when we pray about it. And that is an imagination issue. And that is the same exact thing that's going on in this passage that we're gonna read. God's people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, They've been in Egypt for 400 years. If you've never seen Prince of Egypt, if you want to know the whole story, go on Netflix, watch a movie called Prince of Egypt. It's a great animated film. We'll give you everything you need to know about the Exodus. Um, But they had been there for 400 years. At first, it started out great, but over time, they became enslaved in Egypt. And there were hundreds of thousands of Israelites living in slavery and being oppressed there. And what has happened to them is that their imaginations have been destroyed. Um, So read with me. Um, Read in your handout. Uh, I'm going to be jumping around a little bit, so you might get confused reading along in your Bible. Exodus chapter 5. This is the word of the living God. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. 
Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet you say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. It's the word of the living God. I'm just going to pray and ask him to be with us as we think about it together. Our God, we thank you that you speak to us, that you long to be known. Lord, we praise you because you set the captive free. You speak a word of promise to us, and it's sure. And Lord, we need to hear that this morning. And Lord, we pray, I pray for us, Lord, that you would expand our imaginations, that we would, we would dream of what you might do in our lives, in our families, in Winston-Salem, in the world, and Lord, that we would go after you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My kids have a book about dreaming, and it's called An Awesome Book, which is aptly titled because it is an awesome book, and I would highly recommend it. And it's a book all about dreaming big dreams, obnoxious dreams like cars that run on jelly beans and all this stuff. And uh, it's really great. We love, we love to read it. It's very silly. Um, but it also talks about people that have forgotten to dream or dream really lame dreams, i.e. I, like grown-ups. And... Uh, there's this one part I love, and it says, Some dream of breakfast sandwiches, of buying a new hat, of owning matching silverware. Can you imagine that? Uh, and, and it's funny because kids laugh because they're like, who would ever waste their dreams on owning matching silverware, you know? But our dreams are often really small. Uh, what, what do you dream about? When you wake up in the middle of the night and you do the shuffle to the bathroom, um, what just naturally floats into your mind? When you space out at a red light or during a sermon, um, wh- where, where does your mind go? 
Where does your imagination wander? That is what is captivating your imagination and what has you. And God wants to fill that space, to expand it, to not make it smaller, but make it bigger and help our dreams be bigger and more full of joy and hope. And we struggle to let God fill our dreams because like the Israelites, we believe two things that are not true. And the first is that we believe that worth comes from work, that what we do makes us matter, okay? The Israelites are slaves in Egypt, and slaves by definition are a commodity. They only are valuable when they can accomplish something for you. Um, and God raises up these two people, Moses and Aaron. He says, I want you to go, and I'm going I'm to bring my people out, and I want you to go tell the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, who wasn't just a king, but actually the God, one of the gods of Egypt, to let my people go. And when he goes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's response is really interesting if you look in verse 8. Pharaoh says, they are idle, therefore they cry, let us go. And, 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 he, and he's really right. What he's doing is he's able to control their imaginations, able to, to control their dreams about God by making them work more and more and more. And he says, you're not working enough because when you stop working and you allow yourself to breathe and to rest, your mind and your imagination begins to open and expand to what God is doing. Um, they, they, might con they start to consider what it's like to be free and they get all dreamy and imaginative and they start to be humans created in God's image who have dreams and slave masters can't have that. Slave masters need you to do what they want you to do. They, you can't dream about what you might do. And so he tells them to get back to work. He makes their work harder and longer, more strenuous, more dehumanizing. And Pharaoh is just one example throughout history of how the world, the flesh, and the devil work together to kill dreams about God. Think, think about how this, this works in, in, in your life. Think about someone that you really want to like you. You really want to accept you and approve of you. And the work that you do to try to get them to like you, to accept you, or to approve of you. It takes a lot of energy and activity to get their affection. But no matter how they respond, no matter if they respond exactly the way that you want them to, do you ever feel settled about it? Does, do you ever begin to rest and your imagination goes somewhere else? No, it's constantly driving us. Uh, and, and the thing that's worse is that we never really, we're so busy working to get them to like us that we never dream about what God might want to do in their life. We never dream about what we want to see happen in them and how we might move into it to bless them. We're too busy working to matter. And acceptance is good. Approval is good. We, that's, that's, that's a beautiful thing. We need it. Money is a good and beautiful thing that we need. Um, we all need to, to be able to, to, to care for ourselves and for our families. And so we're all trying to get enough. But when we're trying to get this, this amount of security and we keep working for it, it often feels like we never get to a place where we can actually stop and be settled. We have to work more and to get more. It never feels like enough. I have a friend who's a lawyer. This isn't a lawyer joke. Um, lawyer jokes are lame. You know, you worked hard, okay? Great job. Um, but he said in his job, uh, being a lawyer is like a pie-eating contest where the reward for winning is more pie, you know? And that, that's our work a lot of the time. We work really hard so that we can get more work. And at no point do we begin to dream about how we might bless those around us with our resources. Our imaginations get co-opted by our work. We tend to think that if we work hard enough to get everything together, to get the right people to like us, to arrange our affairs just so, 
to get the right people into our church or the right people out of our church? Or we, can we speak to culture a certain way? Or we stop speaking to culture and get back to the pure gospel? Whatever it is, then when we do those things, then we will matter. And Pharaoh was right. The more busy we are, the more we focus on our work, the less we dream. The more that we believe when our work is complete, then we will matter, the less able we are to imagine God. But the beauty of the Christian message and the hope that we can have when we gather into a place like this is that your worth has literally nothing to do with you, has nothing to do with what you're able to accomplish or what you haven't done, where you f- or you're from or where you're not from, what your family was like. Your value comes from God himself because God made you in his image, and you are precious to him. The eighth psalm says, when I think about all the, the galaxies and the cosmos, the moon and the stars, the work of your fingers that you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? the son of man that you care for him. But God does. God takes thought for you. It says that he's crowned us with glory and honor. And we believe, because our imaginations are so small sometimes, that there are significant people and that there are insignificant people. We believe that there are valuable people and worthless people. But God does not share your thoughts on that. All human beings are, are precious to God. And if you look through the Bible, even just a cursory reading, you would see that God actually seems to prefer to work in the people that seem the most insignificant and least valuable. If anyone was insignificant in Egypt, it was the Hebrews. And God actually tells them later, the reason why I made you my, my people is because you were the smallest, most insignificant people on the earth. That's actually why he prefers them. These were God's beloved ones, and God cares deeply about you when you feel worthless and insignificant. He has not changed because your feelings have changed, and it's because of God's overflowing affection for humans that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to rescue us at the cross. And do you know that you are precious to God? Precious enough to give up everything to have you, And that your worth is not a result of your work or anything that you do. It's given to you. But also, do you recognize that your neighbor is precious to God? Is unbelievably uh, significant to him, regardless of what they've done, regardless of who they are, where they come from? If you were to drive in a mile diameter circle around our city of Winston, Um, I wonder if you would get the sense that some of the places that you drove through were more valuable than others. That some places were valuable and some places were not. I wonder would you get the sense that some of the communities that you drove through and the faces that you saw were more significant than other communities that you've driven through. And the question for us is, is that reality consistent with God's heart toward people? And if not, we have a beautiful dream for our city. Because if you're here and you know Jesus and you believe in this God and you believe in this Bible, you know that each human being is precious and significant to God. And so you get to go out into our city and say, dream a dream with me where all of our people are seen as significant and beautiful and valuable. That is a beautiful dream for us. And how might you share God's heart 
in our world. Your worth comes from God, not from what you can do. So the first, the first lie we believe is that our, our worth comes from our work. But the second lie we believe, it's maybe more insidious, is that you are a slave. That you deserve to be a slave, and that's your rightful place in the world. God's children in Egypt believe that they should be slaves. And here's how I know. If you look in verse 15, Pharaoh has put this hard burden on them, and the foremen who were, who were Israelites, and they were the sort of leaders of the, these work groups, they come to Pharaoh, and look how they talk to him. They say, why do you treat your servants like this? They identify themselves as the servants of their oppressor. They're basically saying, we belong to you, and they plead with him. But then look how they speak to Moses and Aaron, the God-appointed uh, liberators of their people. In, in verse 20, they, they come to Moses and Aaron, and actually in Hebrew it says they came upon them violently with blows. And, and, and it, says, it says, the Lord, look on you and judge. You put a sword in Pharaoh's hand to kill us. They blame Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron didn't put a sword in Pharaoh's hand. It's Pharaoh's intention to oppress God's people, yet they blame their own godly leadership. And the most tragic part, I think, for me is the last verse where Moses goes and he tells them what God's going to do. He's going to bring them out. And what does it say? But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They have fully accepted that this is their place in the world and where they belong. And, and, and I wonder, if you're like me, then you do this as well, right? That you say things to yourself and believe things that you say, I'm a sinner. I'm an addict. I'm a mess. I'm a failure. And sometimes those labels can help us be self-aware about what's going on in our life because, of course, the Bible says that we become enslaved to so many saying, things and we're slaves to sin until Jesus works in our life. But they're terrible identities because any, if you've come to Jesus and you've put your faith in Jesus, even if it felt like just the most trembling, unsure faith, Jesus gives you a new identity immediately, free of charge. If you trust Jesus Galatians 4 says that you are no longer a slave, a sinner, an addict. You are a precious and beloved daughter or son of the living God. That your father dotes on you. And Ephesians 2 says that the reason why Jesus came and lived and died and was raised to save us was so that for eternity, God could actually show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. He didn't save you to get you out of hell. He saved you so he could spend forever showing you how kind and good and beautiful he is and delighting your imagination in him. And you don't earn that status. You can't earn that status. You don't craft that identity. Jesus gives it to you. It's like the fortune in a fortune cookie, you know? It's not the cookie. It's placed inside of you. Jesus puts that inside of you. You were a slave, but now a son, now a beloved daughter. Because look, slaves cannot dream can't hope, can't expect. All that can be expected is what has happened before or worse. But daughters and sons with the keys to the estate, how can they not dream? We know what is ahead of us. And what would it take for you to believe that? It would take an active imagination about something that doesn't seem real right now. There was this, uh, there was this British uh, preacher, and his name was Martin Lloyd-Jones, 
And I was struck one time, he, he was writing about the experience, imagine the experience if you were an African slave in America the day before the Emancipation Proclamation that, that made slavery illegal and the day after the Emancipation Proclamation. On the day before, you were objectively an enslaved person. On the day after, you were objectively a free person. But on the day before and the day after, if you were walking down the sidewalk and you were an enslaved person and a white man said, get off the sidewalk, you're going to behave the same way before as you did the day after because it's possible to be objectively free and subjectively enslaved. And it just feels more real. It feels more dangerous. Um, and, and oppression becomes complete when oppressed people begin to believe in their own inferiority. When they've, when they've, they've been oppressed long enough to begin to believe that this is what they deserve. And this is part of what was really beautiful. Um, if you haven't seen Black Panther, I would recommend it highly. Um, it's not just another Marvel movie, even though it is a great superhero movie. Um, is, is it, part of Black Panther takes place in a supposedly fictional place in Africa called Wakanda. And in Wakanda um, is a place where black women and men are in full splendor of beauty and wealth. Where they have made scientific developments beyond all imagining. And uh, I remember going on the night that the movie came out, and I lived in Boone, and it's a very, very white place. And to be in the theater um, with sisters and brothers of color and then hearing stories afterward um, about how black brothers and sisters and their children were deeply impacted by seeing a story on the screen where black folks weren't defined by struggle or inferiority, but were assumed to be beautiful, powerful leaders. And how deeply affecting that was to see that story and to be able to dream that dream. Because it's true. Like, like, watching my kids, I, I'm going to be honest, when the World Cup final was on, I was in the balcony watching it with my kids. Uh, I went to the first service, too, so it's okay. Um, but when, to watch for, with my little girls, to see our, our U.S. women's national team dominating everybody in the World Cup, and my kids looking and saying, yeah, those are girls like me, and they're champions, and they're strong. That's the power of a new dream. And Israel would not allow themselves to dream about God's deliverance because the shackles and Pharaoh and all the splendor of Egypt seemed more real to them than what was really real, which is that God said, I'm going to let you out of here. I'm making a promise. God is the realest real and the truest true. And if he promises something and he says something's going to happen, there is literally nothing that can stop it from happening. And he said, I'm going to bring you out. But circumstances blunt imagination. So whether you're following Jesus this morning or not, there are things that you have done and things that have been done to you that stick and cling like a dryer sheet inside your shirt, you know? And they remind and they itch and they float into your brain at the red light and they make freedom feel impossible but they're not real. Not in the way that God's promise is real to us to make us new in Jesus. So here's Jesus' call to us this morning because what is this all for? What does this mean? Jesus' call, I think, to us is to start doubting what seems most real in your life 
and to start allowing yourself to dream about what God says is true and the promises that he's made. Uh, I was affected by a, um, a, a piece of art one time. It wasn't a Rothko painting, even though I love him. I was in London pretending to be a Christian because that's the easiest way to travel um, the world. I was in college, and I wasn't yet believing, but I, I pretended I was because people will give you money to go on a mission trip, which is just traveling to Europe for two months, which was really great. And, um, and uh, which is like flying in the face of our friends that are back from Thailand. I'm sorry, guys, but um, <laughs> I've repented of that. Um, and uh, I, went to, I went to a gallery, and there was the work of an English artist named uh, Damien Hirst, who's one of my favorite artists. He's, he's kind of controversial, but this one piece was a 14-foot tiger shark, a real shark, but it was dead, in a glass box. And the glass box is only slightly bigger than the shark, and it's filled with formaldehyde. And as I, I was like, oh, this is interesting. As I approached it and got close to the glass, I started to be very uncomfortable. And I started to get kind of sweaty, you know, and uh, I started to get scared. Because it was a big old shark, 14 feet. And it was just weird because I could see that it's dead. Like, I know that it's dead. And I know that's true. I see the wires. I smell the formaldehyde. But my body, my imagination was responding to it as if it was real. And the, the title of the painting, of the, not the painting, of the, of the piece, is The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living. His point is, you know it's dead, but when you get there, your mind will not allow you to believe that it's dead. It feels real. Your imagination can override what is true, what feels true to you. Jesus rose from the dead. He died and was raised. He overcame death and will live forever. And anyone that puts their trust in him will experience resurrection life and new life, that though they die, they will live again forever with God. Jesus dreamed about God and about us, and his dream came true. Death is dead. Resurrection is real. And I'm going to be real. Just be with me for a second. That is 100% fantasy talk. It is. But it's also true. It's real. It's a myth that is real. And Jesus is calling you to dream about it and to live like it's actually true. So when you hear yourself saying, you're a piece of trash, you don't belong here, you're a fraud, those are powerful words and they're lies. And the way to fight back against them, you can't just say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, gosh darn people like me, and think that it's going to get you somewhere. It's not powerful enough, it's not big enough. But here's what can help. God gave his son so that you can have eternal life, and he's spoken with authority that no one can take away, that you are his child, his beloved one, and he's given you the keys, and he wants to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you in Jesus, and no one can take that away. You are his beloved. And since that fantasy is true, you can hope for the best, pray for impossible things, give yourself to God's work with joy and hope and expectation because you are not a slave you are a child of the living God. And I love, let's bring this down on what's important, which is that I love Walt Disney World with every fiber of my being. Um, and uh, I didn't really realize that I loved Disney. I thought people that were adults that loved Disney were super weird. And then I went to Disney this past year with my family. And um, the reason why I, I love Disney 
and it has become a spiritual retreat center for, for me, is because when you're at Disney, it feels like fantasy is not just possible, but plausible. Like something amazing could happen that would completely unexpected that would, that would change everything. And when you're in the park, it was actually designed so that you would lose, like a casino in some ways, um, that you would lose all awareness of the rest of the world outside of it, right? When you're, there's no place in Disney World that when you get there, can you see anything that's outside of Disney World, right? It feels like you're on another planet where magic is real. And that could be the church. That could be this church because magic is real. There is something that is more real and true and powerful than the circumstances of our lives. And his name is Jesus and he is at work. Nobody knows about this magic. How can we increase Winston's capacity to dream about God? You are Christ's beloved, and some of you are holding on by the thinnest thread while the waves crash over you. And the word to you this morning is not, don't let go. It's real. Some of you want to believe that it's true, desperately. And I want you to hear Jesus saying to you, it's all true. He has risen from the dead. And others of you, this is maybe most of us, are afraid to ask God to work and to expect him to do big, amazing, impossible things because you're afraid. You're afraid of being disappointed that it's not true. And I hear you. Doubt what seems real. Let your imagination begin to run on God's promises. Who have you stopped engaging? Who have you stopped praying for? Where have you given up? God is more eager to work than we think that he is, than we could dream that he is. May he help us to imagine it. Let's pray.